I want you to imagine with me if you were to be just a common barley farmer there in first century Palestine. All right, so you, you've got a plot of ground where you have planted barley, and this is something that you live off of, your family lives off of, this is what you do day by day, you're working in the fields, um, and here you, you hear something of a man named Jesus. And you want to go see him because there have been some pretty amazing things happening, right? Um, people have been healed, the blind have received their sight, demons have been cast out. I want to see this person. So you, the barley farmer, you decide that you're going to go see him. And you make the trek miles and miles to go to the place where he's rumored to be. And there you find him. And I want you to consider what you would hear. He's there, he's teaching a crowd as often gathers around Jesus. What would you hear him talking about? And I'm going to actually ask you to turn and talk to the person next to you and say what you think he would be talking about. So this is an invitation for you. What do you think? Drinking the <laughs> All right, and Bob has got the answer for us. So uh, maybe you think it would be heaven, right? Maybe you think it would be hell. Maybe it would be grace. Maybe it would be sin. Maybe he'd be talking about healing. All right? Those are all things that, yes, Jesus has talked about, things that he talks about on a regular basis. But really, the thing that comes up time and time again, the thing that he keeps telling parables, like all these stories about and trying to get people to understand, is the kingdom of heaven. You would hear something about the kingdom. This is an important thing for Jesus, and it's important for us. He didn't frame his ministry primarily in terms of, of his coming as savior, but primarily in terms of his coming as king. He is our savior, yes. I'm not taking that away, I'm not gonna say that that is not true. He's definitely our savior, but he said he was the king, all right? So I want us to look at this in Luke chapter 17. And as you're going there, I want you to ask, I want, I want you to consider this question. Have you ever had to wait for something that you knew was coming? You were excited about it, you know it's coming, and it's not quite there yet. When Cherish and I got engaged, um, I had planned for quite a while to, to marry Cherish. I remember we hadn't been dating super long whenever I talked to Pastor Daniel, and I was like, I, I think I want to marry her. Um, and as soon as I felt like I had the green light from Cherish to do that, like I, I purchased the ring, and I'm excited to do it, and I'm like, when am I going to do this? And I got invited on her family's vacation to Colorado, and we were going up to Pikes Peak, and I knew that that was, she loves the mountains, loves Colorado, and so we went up to Pikes Peak, and I stashed away the ring in my backpack, and I had, like, this little photo book of all these dates that we had been on or whatever, and we, we go up, and I, like, I'm like, hey, we should go over there, and I, we, so we, like, pull away from her, her family to a distant rock, you know, <laughs> and, and there we're, we're sitting, and talking for a second, and then I, I popped the question, you know, will you marry me? And we, we looked at the book and stuff, and she said yes, luckily. Um, and at that moment, we became engaged, right? And there was a sense in which things had changed, right? Before we were dating, now we're engaged. What, what has changed? We have this promise of marriage. We know that it's coming, but there was also a sense in which we're not married. It's, it was still five months away, and there were even times within those five months where it felt like maybe this isn't going to happen. Even in the last week as COVID came, right? It was like, wait, 
are we going to put this off until this blows over? And there were, there were tons of moments within that time, but I knew that there was, there was going to be a time whenever we were married, whenever we entered into that engagement period. And my hunch is you've experienced the same thing. If you've been married, then that is, you, you know that experience of engagement. You've experienced the tension. Uh, maybe you've been given a job, like you got the job. You went in for the interview, they said, here's the job. But you never, you didn't start the job. It's like two weeks from now, or it's a month from now. Um, maybe you bought a house. And whenever you bought that house, you had this time that you had to wait, right? Uh, you had bought it, but really nothing had happened except the people had like, accepted your offer. You hadn't signed anything, put a down payment, definitely weren't living in the house. So there's this period in which you have purchased it-ish, but you're not in the house. It's not yours. The Bible describes the kingdom in a very similar way. Whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom, he talks about it as a both and. Is, it, is the kingdom something that's happening right now, or is it something that's way in the future whenever he returns to set things right? Jesus says yes. It's both of those things. Right now, we can experience the kingdom. There's a, there's a part of it that is happening here and now. But there's also a, there's a part of it that is happening in the future. And we sang about that a little bit today. Right now, we live in a world that is full of brokenness. We see it in our own lives. We see it in our poor decisions and the chaos that results from those poor decisions. We see it in the bitterness that wells up in us as we go into a conflict with our spouse or the blow-up reaction we have as a result of that uh, bitterness that has just come to the surface. We see it in a drunk driving accident where someone has been senselessly killed. We see it in the rebellion of children towards their parents. We see brokenness and sin in the world. We know that that is here. We see it most recently, I, th I think, about Tim Keller. If you guys didn't know who Tim Keller was, he was a pastor in New York City. And he led a congregation that's planted so many churches, and he's written books that have helped millions of Christians around the world. And he, had, he was diagnosed two years ago with pancreatic cancer, and this, just this past week, he died. And even, even in someone who's older, and it's like, well, okay, but he was older, like he was, he was likely going to die pretty soon anyways. It's still sad, isn't it? Like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if someone dies whenever they're five years old, or whenever they're 95 years old, it still doesn't feel right. There's something wrong in this world, and we live in a world where that's the case. We live in a world that's not as it should be. So in, in what sense are we living in the kingdom now? Because it's, right now, it's e super easy for us to say, things aren't right here, but over there, in heaven, where we will be made whole, where evil will be done away with, where there will be no crying, no shame. All our tears will be taken away. That's easy to see. I can see how that would be good. Like, that is the kingdom. How do we experience the kingdom in this space, where we are right now? This is a question that we don't just have today, but people had in Jesus' time. The Jewish leaders and even his disciples had expected the kingdom. 
They had read the Old Testament, and they knew that it was something that would come. However, they thought it would come in a certain way. Whenever, whenever they thought of the kingdom, they thought of, um, of a king, an earthly king, who would come and set things right. And this would largely look like their enemies being killed, namely the Romans. Like, you would know the kingdom's there because all the Romans are dead. All right? Boom. That's the kingdom. Pretty easy to see because there are dead Romans everywhere. Okay? Um, that, so the evil have been dealt with. And all the wrongs have been made right. And there's this new king, literal person, who is on the throne in Jerusalem in the Middle East. That is the kingdom. But what did Jesus say about the kingdom? That's what we're going to see here in Luke 17, 20. In this passage, I think we can see that the kingdom of God affects us right now. And his lordship and our surrender, there is true freedom from sin and the brokenness that results. Luke 17, 20 says, Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you or among us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kingship. Lord, we know that you, you are king and that we, though we try to be king, are such poor rulers and that everywhere we go leads to destruction, to shame. Father, I pray that this morning you would help us to understand what it means that you are king and would lead us into submission to you and obedience and would lead Faith Church into flourishing in your kingdom right now, right here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The first thing that Jesus says is the kingdom is not what, what the Pharisees have expected. And part of what the Pharisees expected was based on the Old Testament. Part of what they expected was also based on what they wanted. So what I want to say is it wasn't a Burger King kingdom, right? It was not a kingdom where you could just have it your way. Um, as we look at the kingdom, it's not what they were looking for, the Pharisees and the disciples. They were looking for a literal kingship, the death of their foes, and God's favor on them restored. That's the... the image that they were looking for in the, in the Middle East. Today, I would say we're not really looking for that. Like, the average person in our world today is not looking for this, like, I don't know who your enemy would be. Maybe it's the Democrats. Maybe it's the Republicans. Maybe it's this company that you work for that you really hate. And you're not looking for them to, like, all die one day. And you're like, oh, Jesus is back. All right, that's not going to be what you expect, right? But what do, we, what do we look for in the kingdom today? We want the good parts of Jesus' rule, right? We want peace and joy, patience, love, kindness, goodness, self-control. We want the benefits of the kingdom. However, we want it on our terms, without someone telling us what to do. We want the kingdom without the king. We, whenever the Jewish leaders looked for a king, they looked for someone who was going to be rich, someone who 
would maybe have rich patrons who would support him. So it, we know this because whenever we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus said that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Not to say that it was impossible. That's not what he said. He said all things are possible with God. But it's very difficult for a rich man to go to heaven. And then he explains this, and he says, or we get this idea of what the disciples believed whenever we see their reaction. It says that they couldn't believe it. And they said, then who can be saved? Who in the world is going to enter into your kingdom if not the rich? Because those are the people who are living in God's blessing right now. And why did Jesus teach them that? Because apparently the rich people are not the ones who are part of the kingdom right now. Like being rich does not mean that you are right now living in God's kingdom. So does that mean that you're not a part of the kingdom? It doesn't mean necessarily that, but it does mean that it's difficult. It's more difficult for a rich person is what Jesus says. The kingdom of God is not determined by the criteria of man. We see this also whenever Lazarus and the rich man, which we have Lazarus's name, we don't have the rich man's name, in this story, who is the one who ends up going to heaven? It's not the rich man, is it? And in, in this society at this time, who would you expect? Well, it's the person who's living the blessed life. They have the comforts of everyday living because God has blessed them. But instead, it's actually Lazarus who goes to heaven. It's, it doesn't happen the way that we think it would happen. Jesus says it's actually not the stuff of buildings and of status. It's not something that you're going to see. You're not going to say, oh, there it is. That's the kingdom. Oh, I see it. That's all those dead people there. The, the, rich, uh, the rich people have inaugurated this king. And they've supported him through this, and now things are being made right. It's not going to be that easy. That's not actually what you're going to see. Instead, he says it's like a, a mustard seed, right? It's this tiny seed that when it grows up becomes a great tree that supports many animals, right? They, they live in, in this tree, but it starts small. It's actually unnoticeable, almost, how small it starts. The kingdom of heaven doesn't start as this big event, but it starts small. It starts within people. It's, it's like the pearl that someone finds in a field, and whenever they find it, they, they want to buy the field, so they sell everything they have so that they can purchase the field. Is that, did everybody know about the pearl? No. One person knew about that, that pearl, and he was willing to give up everything. It's not a well-known thing, but it's something that's worth everything. The kingdom is not what we would expect. The kingdom of Jesus is also not visible, right? It's not a government. You're not going to go uh, even, you're not going to go to a, a great building like maybe what you would see in the Vatican and be like, whoa, look at all the paintings and see the great statues that have been made and say, this is the kingdom of heaven. No, it's actually not here or there. It's not something that can be seen. Instead, Jesus says, if you expect this and you look for it, you're not going to find anything. Have you ever considered what, what makes a place a place? Is a, a house a home, or do the people and the memories made in a place make it the home? Is home the place where it's like on your address for mail, 
or is it the place that you feel most comfortable? What makes a place a place? There's a, a woman named Gertrude Stein who wrote a novel, and she talked about, she wrote several novels. She actually went back to her home of her childhood in Oakland, California, and whenever she went back to see where she had grown up after so many decades away, she said, she made this famous statement, she said there was no there there. There was no there there. And what does she mean by that? She, there is a grammar teacher hat, right? It's an antecedent that refers, or I'm sorry, it is a, it's, it's a pro, it's a, I don't know what it is, but it, the antecedent for there is the place that you are, is the place that you're referring to. So I grew up in Wabash. If I went back to Wabash, there, then I would see my home. My home doesn't, I've, I've been back to Wabash several times. It's like four and a half hours away. I get to see my family every once in a while. If I go by my house, it doesn't look like the house where I grew up, right? There's a sense in which, yes, that was the place where I grew up, but there's also a sense in which that's not the place I grew up, right? That's the location, but it looks totally different. There's, the trees have been cut down. It, it doesn't look the same. My hunch is you've probably had this experience where you've, you've experienced that there is not a there there anymore. Maybe it's your childhood, childhood home, or maybe the home of a friend that you spent tons of time there. Or if you live in Evansville, um, from what I've heard, Evansville was really pretty small, and everything that I, we now know as Evansville that is on the outskirts was just like cornfields and stuff, and there's not there there anymore, right? There are, there are people who lived 100 years ago who if they went over to Burkhart and took a stroll down Burkhart, they would be like, what in the world? Where am I, right? There's no there there. Jesus said that the kingdom is not just the place that you expect. It's not what you think it is unless you can accommodate the, what you're looking for to what Jesus is saying. Jesus pronounced the kingdom, but it wasn't what people were looking for. So they couldn't find the there that they were looking for. We have to accommodate our understanding to what Jesus says. And what he says is this. He says, the kingdom is within y'all, right? Y'all. It's that, that plural you that we don't have in English unless you say it informally. So it's, he says it's a, in your midst is really the better translation. Um, people go back and forth on how to translate it. In the NKJV, they say um, it's in, inside of you. But if you think about it, Jesus is actually speaking to the Pharisees. So to say the kingdom is inside of the Pharisees, don't think is what he was probably getting at. So a lot of translations will say that this is in your midst, in your midst. It's among you right here in this place. He, what, what makes the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of heaven? For Jesus, there's a way in which the kingdom of heaven is this future reality, which he literally talks about in the verses that follow, all right? I'm not trying to eisegete here. I know that right after this, he talks about the kingdom in a future sense. But there's also a sense in which he talks about it right here. It's in the middle of his hearers. It's right in their midst. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the king who is presently speaking to them. The kingdom exists where Jesus is. The thing that you are looking for, these Pharisees have asked him the question, right? Where, where are we going to find the kingdom? The thing that you're looking for is actually right in front of you. It's among you. It's around you. The kingdom, it turns out, is not a place, but it's a people who live as subjects 
to the king. People who live in his lordship. They proclaim him as king and their life looks different as a result. This is the kingdom. Jesus himself was the king. And the kingdom was established in those who followed him in obedience. Now, where does the text say this? All right, I want you to, you don't have to look back at this, but if you want to write it down and look back later. Um, In the preceding verses, and we could go back to the beginning of Luke, we could look at things after Luke and see what the kingdom looks like. But in Luke 16, 1 through 13, he says that it looks, allegiance to God is a part of the kingdom, that it's before money because you can't serve both. Allegiance to God is, you can't have allegiance to God and allegiance to money. You can only have one of those things. What is the kingdom? It's allegiance to God over everything else. In Luke 17, 1 through 4, he says, life in the kingdom is forgiving those who wrong you repeatedly. Now, I I do want to add this caveat. He doesn't say, in the kingdom, this is how things work. But whenever Jesus is teaching, whenever he's telling his disciples to do things, he's talking about the kingdom, right? So whenever he says, don't forgive them seven times, but seven times 70 times, what is he referring to? He's talking about the kingdom. If you live in the kingdom, this is what it looks like. It looks like forgiving your repeated offender, right? It's service to the king. This is 17, 5 through 10. This is service to the king is not a matter of earning the king's favor, but instead just recognizing him as king. These are the servants who would simply do their job, recognizing their place in the house. And then this is the most clear portrait. It comes right before this. It says Luke 17, 11 through 19. It, we see that these lepers, the 10 lepers are healed. The kingdom is expressed in Jesus's control over disease. Yes, he's king. He's Lord over all of creation. But it's also shown in the leper who stops and gives thanks. There are many who are affected by the kingdom in that passage, in this, this story, but there's only one who actually comes under the rule of Christ in that moment and recognizes him as Lord and gives him thanks. The other nine just enjoy the benefits. They want the kingdom without the king. They want heal, healed. They want restoration with their families, but they don't They don't desire to come under his lordship, to follow him with abandon. In short, the kingdom is made up of people captivated by the king, resulting in obedience that brings freedom. So what is the kingdom? The kingdom is centered on Jesus, and it is a people who follow him in obedience. The kingdom is a people who follow him in obedience. So you're never going to point at a building. You're going to see a people who are changed. And whenever you see a changed people who are living in obedience to the king, who recognize that they are not lord over their own lives, this is what the kingdom is. It's in your midst. What the kingdom is not is it's not Jesus as merely your savior who will get you to heaven whenever you die. Will Jesus, can Jesus be your savior who gets you to heaven whenever you die? Yes, if you have followed Jesus in faith, that is 100% true. But is the kingdom merely a group of people who whenever they die will go to heaven? Is that it? 
Is that all that we have? Like there's nothing over here for us in this life, in this broken world. There's only something over here for us in the life to come or in the age to come whenever Jesus returns and whenever we're in heaven with him. Is that, is that all we're waiting for? We're just over here waiting in a broken world to die. Like one day I'm going to die and then I'll experience the kingdom. For Jesus, no, no. He actually says it's something that affects you right now. It's something that's right here in your midst. It's something that you are being called into right now. It's, it's whenever you, it's the leper who turns around after he's received this healing and he, he uh, thanks Jesus. He calls him Lord. He recognizes who he is right here and right now and it changes his life. Without being affected right now, I'm afraid that there is no future. If, if there's no change in your life right now, then you're probably not going to heaven. The Bible teaches this time and time again. Whenever we come under Jesus' kingdom rule, we are affected here and now, and it changes our eternal destination. We will enter into his kingdom forever. But if you think that you make a decision here, and then one day, that will have an effect. But really, you just got your get out of hell free card, you stick it in your wallet, and then you go about your business. That's not the type of kingdom that Jesus is talking about. He cannot be your savior without being your Lord. Jesus' kingdom was right there among his listeners. And his kingdom is also right here among us. Jesus did not leave his disciples as sheep with no shepherd, but as ambassadors on a mission for the king. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says, it says that this is as Jesus is about to leave them. He says, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said it was actually better for him to leave, right, so that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, could come. Are we people with no shepherd? No. If you have faith in Jesus, then right now, his kingdom is with us, right? It's his Holy Spirit, God's personal presence, is with us here and now. And we've been commissioned with his authority, with his kingship behind us, to be able to go into all the world and to make disciples. We have a purpose right here and now. We are invested with the king's presence and authority. This is the authority that gave sight to the blind, that made the lame walk, the demons flee. What is natural or what we are prone to, all right? So the things that are a part of this world, the sin that we live in, that we struggle with, the evil that seems to have a, its grip on this world is actually not a permanent thing in the kingdom. Jesus grants freedom. In his kingdom, there is freedom. We know, that we know what is natural to us. We know the things that we are born into in this life. We, we know the pride that wells up whenever we receive criticism. I know that pride, right? I would imagine you do too. 
Um, we know the resentment that we feel when someone's wronged us or our family. We know the addiction to drugs, the pornography, an addiction to social media, the things that we use to fill our time and think that are, is going to fulfill our lives or satisfy. What are these things except remnants of a kingdom that's passing away? The kingdom where you and I reign, where our word is final, where our pleasure and glory must triumph. A kingdom that leads to ruin. The kingdom that made you feel powerful for a moment, whenever you made that decision to blow up on that person, whenever you made that decision to look at pornography again, it made you feel good for a moment. But it left you feeling shame and regret. A kingdom that we lived in, where we were the king, but we actually felt like we needed to hide in our own kingdoms because we're so full of shame. A kingdom that we somehow still think will help, right? Even after we follow Jesus and we still flee to that kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is in our midst. His presence is here with us through the Holy Spirit. And in him, you do not have to be captive to yourself, to your own kingdom. You can live in the kingdom. The king is here, and he simply calls us to abandon our little kingdom and our little kingship that we think we have and to trust him as the Lord and Savior of our lives. When we come under his lordship, when we follow King Jesus, and we, we find that we can experience the kingdom right here and now in the middle of our frustrating jobs, in the middle of our broken or frail marriages, in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our anxiety, will we come to him? Will we come to him, all who are weary and weighed down? Will we take his way upon us and obey him so that we can find rest for our souls? Sometimes it seems, and I was, I was kind of made to think this way, that uh, surrender and declaring him as king was something, it was a one-time event where you, you felt convicted, you recognized how stupid you were, and then they started playing here uh, just as I am, and then you come down to the altar and you surrender at that time, and then it's over. Whew. Glad I'm not trying to be king anymore. That's over and done. I'll never struggle with that again. <laughs> and it just doesn't work that way, does it? We're called to surrender day by day, every day. I've got just a journal entry that I want you to see here from a man named Jim Elliott. Now, the Elliots, you won't be able to read it super well, but the, the Elliots, they left their, their home in the States. They left their families, and they had a little girl at the time, to learn a new language and to reach a hostile group of, uh, of Indians who lived in Ecuador. And so they moved um, there into Ecuador, and they, they started to learn the language so that they could make contact with the, these Indians to be able to share the gospel with them, which is a really good thing. And he, he made this super famous statement in his journal um, that is quoted, it, it's actually one of the most quoted statements outside of the Bible, right, about the Bible. Um, and you guys will probably recognize it as we get to it. But the interesting thing about the Elliots 
and the thing that most of us know, is that they, as, as they were compelled by the gospel, they went to these Indians and they, they made their first contact after giving them gifts time after time. And as they made their first contact, Jim Elliott and four other men died. They're on the beaches trying to reach this group of people. They were all killed. And this statement is something that's kind of like lived on as Jim Elliott's legacy of sorts. There have been books written about him that are great, but this statement that he made about this abandon that he had lives on. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Now, this statement sounds like the kind of statement that maybe he, he recognized that morning as he was about to reach this group of Indians. And he's like, I know that I could lose my life today. And he thought about it, and he was like, what are my last words? And he made this journal entry. But actually, this happened long before that final contact. This is really just a random day, if we're looking at this journal entry. He kept the journal, and he was, he was talking about the things that God had taught him, right? And so he's reading the Gospels, and he writes this down on October 28th. He died over a year later. This isn't a significant day. This is a, a regular day in the life of Jim Elliott, who recognized that he had nothing that he could gain that was going to get him anything. That he could try to keep his life, but he would lose it. That it wasn't worth trying to keep, but he would give it up for Jesus. And he did this on a daily basis. Guys, we don't surrender one time. And that's, the, that's it. It was like that big moment, and I'm, I'm done. I, I surrender to King Jesus. I recognize that his rule and reign should be in my life. It happens on a daily basis. We die daily to ourselves. We daily recognize that the kingdom that we have in this world where we think we're kings is a, it's a castle of sand. It's not going to last. It also doesn't lead to life. It leads to death all around us. And we lay it down and we say, Jesus, you are king. What are you calling me to today? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Faith Church, will we give up what we can't keep to gain what we can't lose? Will we surrender what we have held on to to the king who even now is in our midst, inviting us into his kingdom, life. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.